0: The Jewish Views on Limud 2015. The conference is nearly upon us once more and we speak to the new man at the top. Golders Green United as the community marks its centenary. This week we find out about its history and what can you do to light up a life.
1: But first, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Security leaders in the Jewish community have welcomed an idea put forward by Google's executive chairman for a kind of spell-checker for hate and harassment. Eric Schmidt says it's so the Internet is only used for positive ends. He added that videos posted by terrorist groups should be removed before they spread. A spokesman for the Community Security Trust said it welcomed all technical means by which internet companies can tackle hate speech. A petition which has been signed by 5,000 people is calling for armed guards outside synagogues and Jewish schools. It says other countries in Europe provide such security and asks the UK government to do the same before an attack, such as the one on Copenhagen's Grand Synagogue earlier this year, happens here. The petition, which was started by Moses Hoffman, who lives in Golders Green, needs 10,000 signatures to get an official response. The worldwide nuclear watchdog, the IAEA, has closed its 12-year investigation into concerns that Iran might be developing nuclear weapons. The investigation had to be formally ended as part of a deal made in the summer between Iran and six other countries, including the United States, that involves the removal of economic sanctions against Tehran. Strong criticism came from Israel, which tried and failed to prevent the deal from materialising. For the first time in the history of modern Turkey, a public Hanukkah lighting was held in Istanbul. The lighting took place outside the Ortakoy Mosque on the eighth and final night and was attended by government representatives. It was organised by Turkey's chief rabbi and members of the Jewish community. And finally... Benjamin Netanyahu's family dog bit two guests, one of them the Deputy Foreign Minister, at the Prime Minister's Hanukkah lighting ceremony. Mr Netanyahu, his wife, and two sons sent the naughty pooch, Kaya, to the doghouse. Neither of the bitten visitors was seriously hurt. That's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the
2: sport. Thank you, Viv. Scrabble manager Ray Abrahams was full of praise for his players after they recorded their 10th consecutive league win at the weekend. Calling it a fantastic achievement, the 3-0 win over Hendon B saw them move 12 points clear at the top of the Division 2 table, and win number 11 should be a foregone conclusion at the weekend when they face a team who are rooted to the foot of the table, Temple Fortune. Para swimmer Matthew Buckland won bronze at the British National Para Swimming Championships in Nottingham at the weekend. The 14-year-old from Edgware had previously won five gold medals at the recent London Regional Disability Swimming Championships and hopes to compete at both the 2017 Maccabiah Games in Israel and 2020 Paralympic Games in Tokyo. Eton's Jewish Studies tutor, Jonathan Poole, has completed his Great Atlantic Challenge, sailing 3,000 nautical miles in 19 days and in doing so, raising more than £20,000 for Shah Sedek. Jonathan and his crew arrived in St Lucia last Friday morning and described the trip as an amazing challenge. And finally, Israel will host one of its biggest ever sporting events after it was announced as co-hosts of the 2017 Eurobasket, European basketball's premier international tournament. Thank you very much, Andrew. Well, let's start off the show as we always do with
0: a look at your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me is Managing Editor Richard Ferrer and Features Editor Fran Warfish. Welcome to you both. And let's start off with a rather intriguing front cover that tells us that apparently, Fran, Borham Wood is the number one destination for us Northwest London Jews.
3: Well, Phil, don't sound quite so surprised. Yes, Boringwood has now officially overtaken Stanmore's, the biggest Jewish community. It's got 2,400 members.
0: Of which you're one of them. Of
3: which I'm one of them. And most of us try and crowd into the one shul on uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, meaning there's a bit of a spillage into other shuls around the area. But yes, the community is growing and growing. I mean, let us not forget Harrison Ford at one time did call the place Boringwood, and for lots of Star Wars fans this we've
0: week... We've all been there,
3: we've all been there. <laughs> uh, yes, for Star Wars fans this week, obviously, you know, they still refer fondly to Borenwood as the spiritual home of Star Wars. But that's not the only reason to move there if you're Jewish. It's a great place, actually, to bring up your family. There's lots of sort of new homes being built all the time. Some people have complained about that. But the reality is... They provide a lot of affordable housing. Most young Jewish families can't afford now to live in northwest London. And Boreham Wood is just a great place to be. There's lots of kosher shops, bakeries, delis, two new restaurants opening very soon. a selection of six shuls. that covers most of the sort of strands of Judaism from Orthodox to Mazorti and liberal. And I think, you know, there's something for everyone. That's why people are being drawn to Boreham Wood. It's the new. The new place to be. And uh, it's interesting because we do sort of see this westward movement of Jewish families. And I can see in 20 years' time, St. Albans or the areas around Watford might be the new centres for Jewish families as housing becomes more and more expensive.
0: Well, what I found particularly fascinating as someone who used to work in Boreham Wood, I can't help but notice the number of, as you say, kosher shops and restaurants that are just opening up. It's almost this once derelict part of the high street has now burst into some sort of kosher life. Rich, let's have a look inside the paper. What have we got
4: As any of our listeners with children of a certain age might know, at the uh, start of next September, There's going to be uh, a change to the curriculum for GCSE religious studies, whereby religious schools are going to have to teach 25% of the curriculum about another religion. Now, the chief rabbi has come out this week and said Jewish schools should teach 25% on Islam. The choice could have been Catholicism or any other religion. The chief rabbi has chosen Islam as the priority, which I think is actually a, a magnificent thing to do obviously he's going to court a little bit of controversy I imagine about some parents not wanting their children to learn about Islam but when you are looking at uh, a fix for the situation we're currently in with the intolerance and the sensitivity I think finding common ground amongst religions starts with education and it starts with finding a, a shared and common humanity and teaching children at that age about the the values that are instilled in other faiths as well as their own can only be a good thing. Well, one of the
0: things that has come up
4: time and time again on various incarnations of this very
0: programme has been religious tolerance, whether it be looking at anti-Semitism, whether it look at anti-Islam, whatever it is. And we have sort of established that a lot of intolerance comes from within our very own religion, which is sad in one way. But I suppose when you're talking about traditional values that have been taught in such a way that maybe some might describe as a bit of a bubble environment one where you're not used to other cultures other races religions whatever you want to describe as you can sort of see maybe that there might be something in this because we need to do something to try and help understand one another
4: with the different communities so perhaps the chief rabbi has got a point and it needs to be reciprocated i mean obviously it also means that any muslim school that teaches religious studies at a gcse has a 25 percent part of its curriculum that it can teach about other religions and i hope the muslim schools choose judaism as much as Jew- jewish schools are choosing islam
0: well, let's see let's see what happens and speaking of understanding and uh, preferably not hatred I believe that Google has a new weapon. We were hearing in the news with Viv just now that they're going to try and look out for various words that might cause offence. What's that about?
4: Yeah, the internet, social media is obviously a breeding ground for intolerance. It's a place where ignorant people uh, that want to spread hate can wander anonymously and often unchecked. The bosses at Google have decided they would like to look into the possibility of developing a hate speech spell checker to kind of prompt users away from using racist terminology and to kind of flag up when any issues Do seem to crop up, and obviously anti-Islam and anti-Semitism are obviously two of the areas that are key when it comes to racism online. It's quite pertinent this week that it should also come to light in the week that uh, an extremist called Joshua Bonehill, who infamously organised the anti-Jewification of Golders Green rally in uh, July, was in front of a judge this week and has been found guilty of inciting racial hatred. He conveyed a lot of his intolerance through social media, through Twitter uh, and Facebook. the like so with these sort of things in place hopefully it would mean that we can keep an eye on these sort of characters in future unless people will be affected by this sort of intolerance going forward
0: but there will be those out there who say because I've heard both sides of the argument that that is that people who use the internet don't want to be um, unfortunately you don't have much of a choice but don't want to be monitored they don't want to think that someone is watching their every move and I suppose also the discussion of freedom of speech crops into this as well where do we want to draw that line where in society where we have allegedly freedom of speech, we're now saying potentially that with thanks to tools such as the one that Google is talking about potentially developing, that means that actually we won't have freedom of speech. So again, it's really sort of hard balancing act really, isn't it? Because you don't really know where the right balance is.
3: Yeah, I, I think this has been an argument that's been rumbling on ever since the internet actually came into use. And people have talked about regulation of the internet generally. I mean, it's a global tool now. When I log into something in the UK and I put something into my Google search box, you know, it's going to bring up pages from all over the world, not just from the UK. So it is a problem, I think, for advocates of free speech. And it's a it's a good point to make how this Google hate speech checker will really be used.
0: And also let's not forget as well that if we do look at the other side there are of course those out there who believe that a lot of terrorism stems from grooming as it were on the internet. So hopefully that might go some way to combat that. Interesting one. Let's see how that unfolds. Shall we move on? Simon Sebag Montefiore I believe is in the paper this week. Yes he is. He's
3: actually got a fascinating new series on BBC2. It's called Blood and Gold, The Making of Spain and he really looks at the The roots of Spain, how it came about, and the kingdoms, all the various emperors who were involved with it. 2,000 years of history just crammed into three episodes. What was interesting for Simon when he spoke to us this week was that he had a bit of a who-do-you-think-you-are moment. He found a researcher who actually did some digging into his own family background. Of course, the Montefiores, according to many, many books which are out there, have always been from Italy. But he actually discovered... The family was originally from Spain and he, as part of this research, actually came across some documents proving that some distant relatives were actually burned at the stake during the Spanish Inquisition. He actually said to me, he's not the type of person to start weeping on television, but when he came across these documents, he was obviously visibly moved and found it quite emotional to read from uh, there was actually a poem written from this woman who is his distant grandmother many times over and she wrote a poem just shortly before she was burned at the stake asking for a sweet death I mean it's all very sad really but quite a fascinating sort of insight into the Spanish Inquisition and how uh, the expulsion of the Jews in 1492 really affected the Jewish community there.
0: That does sound absolutely phenomenal. I think I have to confess as well that when I think of my ancestors, because none of my ancestors, as far as I'm aware, were Sephardic, they're all Ashkenazi, I don't really know that much about that line of history as far as the Jewish community is concerned. So I think it'd be quite nice that for programs like that to actually educate perhaps members of the Jewish community as well who might not ordinarily have an appreciation for it.
3: Absolutely. I've done a bit of digging into my own family. And it's amazing the documents that you can come across. Obviously, if your roots are in Eastern Europe, unfortunately, a lot of the documents were destroyed uh, during the war. But you can go back a few generations. And it is fascinating what you can discover.
0: And do we know when that's going to be transmitted?
3: Well that particular episode did go out on Tuesday night but you can still catch it on iPlayer and the third episode the last episode of the series will go out next Tuesday. The third episode obviously looking at more modern history and Simon will be looking at Franco and obviously he had a big impact on the Jewish community in Spain during the war years so again it's one to tune into.
0: Brilliant. Okay, well, we should look out for that. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for from the paper for this week. But thank you both very much. Indeed, you are listening to the Jewish Views. And now, Limud, the conference, can you believe is back once more? It doesn't seem possible. that It was a whole year ago since the last one. But sure enough, it pretty much was. And as a result of it, they now have a little bit of a new look with a new chairman. I caught up with David Hoffman, who is the new chair of Limud, earlier on in the week, and I started by asking him to tell us how things might change under his new leadership.
5: The first thing I should definitely say is that I'm really excited to be taking this on. I suspect that really more of the same, I I don't come to Limud with radical new ideas. I want to continue to have Limud grow and develop the way it is at the moment. The things about Limud that I want to help with are the things that excite me. It's a leader in cross-communal, multi-generational, non-denominational Jewish learning, and I want to encourage those things to thrive and develop. It's also very exciting to me that Limud is really a, a truly international phenomenon. I had the great pleasure Previously, one of my previous roles was as chair of Limud International, which is the Limud support role for teams around the world. And that was a great pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to helping support the existing groups we have around the world and supporting new groups. So really more of the same, helping Limud grow bigger and reach more people.
0: What would you say makes Limud as unique as it is because I know I say unique obviously as you've just alluded to it is around the world but the actual idea behind it the sort of the coming together and the the educating the informing and everything that takes place at a Limud conference with that ultra-Jewish element running through it what would you say does make Limud so different as an event? I think a lot of
5: it is to do with the fact that a Lemud event is open to so many different viewpoints. Uh, Lemud has no agenda itself when it puts an event together. It's after creating diversity and allowing people to experience any and every sort of Jewish education, culture, aspects, any aspect of Jewish life. So the result is that people can come to Lemud and really explore ideas and different views of the world, and they can have a, a completely different experience. I'll go to Limud Conference this year and do a whole bunch of different things and meet people, and my experience will be amazing, I have every confidence, but the two and a half thousand other people will have a completely different experience to me, and it will still be amazing and inspirational, but it will be completely different. One person can go to Limud and spend the whole time finding out about what's going on in Israel and Israeli politics. And someone else might go and spend their whole time doing text study. Someone else might go and spend the whole time playing music. You know, there there are so many different ways. And those are just three examples amongst two and a half thousand of what people will end up doing. So I think that openness, that diversity is really important. I think the fact that it's not denominational is really important because, it's a great place to meet Jews of very different viewpoints and backgrounds the international flavor is also felt very much at conference we have this year we have people com- coming from 28 different countries to to conference in birmingham including a lot of people who are themselves Limud volunteers around the world we have this year for the first time some of the madrachim the youth leaders for the young Limud program coming from around the world they're coming from Israel, Romania, Russia, and Serbia, drawing on people who've been to conflict before with the Rothschilds Matarai Youth Programme and the, the Jewish Agency for Israel. And, and that's really exciting because that actually brings a lot of young international volunteers right into the heart of the Limud event. And um, one of the things we take most seriously, which is childcare, looking after children and giving the children, a really exciting programme, which is itself a Limud education. Those are both... I think really important aspects
0: I know that you said that with Limud that there is no agenda but there is obviously a reason behind it what would you say Limud's ultimate goal is when would you know that Limud is as you at the organization want it to be where do you want it to get to what's your definition of success would you say
5: there's so many different ways in which you can measure the success of Limud. One one obvious measure is the number of people that we reach. And it doesn't matter whether we reach them and they end up more religious or less religious or more interested in one thing or more interested in another. But as long as they are just that bit more engaged, they've taken our, our own phrase that we like using is one step further on their Jewish journey. So, we don't measure it by the nature or the quality of that Jewish journey, except that they've taken one more step on it through coming to the mud. And if they come to the mud lots, they might take lots of steps on it. So I I think there's a numbers point. The conference, as I say, has a little over two and a half thousand people. Last year, this year, we had 83 Lombard groups around the world, ran 66 different events with about 33,000 participants. So that gives you some idea of we have a, quite a, a, a good reach globally, but we'd like to build on that and have Limud as part of Jewish life in more communities with more events so that more people can try it out. There's simply the number of people. I think partly also conference is now very well established. And so... The goal there, I think, is simply to keep up that high standard, keep having world-class presenters, people come to speak, come to perform, come to present on whatever it is they're talking about, gradually grow and expand how many people that can reach. But also, where else that can reach? We have, as you may know, Limud's all around the UK. I've been very involved in the Limud in my hometown of Manchester. There's Limud's in Leeds, Liverpool, a number of different other cities. And so they're all opportunities for Limud to just gradually expand its reach and for more people to have that experience and then take that back with them. So I suppose another measure of success is in terms of our volunteers. Limud Conference is put together by about 70 on the main team, there's more than 300 people who will volunteer at the event. Worldwide this year, we think we had about 3,000 volunteers involved in places with people around the world. One of the most exciting things that Limud, I think, has contributed to the Jewish community in, in England, in Britain, is to produce really a whole generation of committed, engaged, enthusiastic Jewish leaders who've been through Limud, who volunteered with Limud, who've taken a whole variety of roles and then have taken that experience to other organisations, other projects. There are so many different Jewish projects now on a really vibrant scene, particularly in London. Yes,
0: yeah, so where... almost at the core of what they've achieved has been Limud sort of is almost where they started. Just really quickly, can I just ask you to pick out what you describe as one or two highlights from this year's conference? What, what would you say are the ones to look out for?
5: There's a few I can mention. Someone I'm very excited to hear is Sharon Bruce, who's the founding rabbi of ICAR in Los Angeles. I hope I've pronounced that right. We've got the historian Deborah Lipstadt, who's best known for her court battle against Holocaust denier David Irving. And I've heard her speak before, and she's amazing. We've got the public intellectual Eva Hoffman, whose books include Lost in Translation. We've got the foodie Liz Alpen, who has reimagined gefilte fish that I would like to see
0: um, and
5: <laughs> possibly taste. I don't know if we're going to have a, have a sampling.
0: Well, oh, I don't um, know if it's reimagined. I'm not sure. I don't want to shatter my illusion of gefilte fish.
5: <laughs> well, that's, that's also very true, uh, but you
0: know, Limit is all about trying new things. And... Indeed. Indeed. Um, <laughs> Anything it's... else that we need to look out for?
5: Well, I, I have a slight personal bias towards music, which is always a big part of my limit experience. I'm delighted that there's a, Canto Ramon Tassat, who is originally from Argentina, is going to be back over. And there's a couple of guys who perform as Darshan who describe themselves as producing musical midrash and rap-inflected poetry. And they're always really good. And there's a whole bunch of other people as well. One of the, the problems with trying to describe conference in a few highlights is that there are more than 500 people presenting sessions. So any list I give is just a few real highlights but everybody who looks at the list of presenters and they're all on on our website
0: well i was going to say i think the best thing that you could possibly do is just to tell us if people want more information in terms of location and also how they can get any information or access to the events you speak of where do they go
5: absolutely if you go to www.limmud.org and you will see there. On the main page, there is a link to conference, Limud Conference 2015, and that will tell you everything you need to know, including how you can how you get there where it is, how you can book, and there's a tab called Programme where you can find a list of all the presenters and all the sessions.
0: The new chairman of Limud, David Hoffman, speaking to me there about what to expect from this year's conference and his plans for the organisation's future. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish Schmooze. Today, Clive is joined by actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz, and artist and blogger Amanda Wayne. They'll be discussing a petition that's calling on the government to provide armed security for the community. We heard that story just before in the news with Viv, but more on that in a moment. Plus, Kate Fulton has been speaking to Rabbi Yosef Solomon from Tikkun to find out about their Light Up a Life volunteering initiative. But first, Golders Green United Community has been celebrating its centenary this week. The congregation was established in 1915 and has been the home of many notable Jews, not least of all Emeritus Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Community reporter Diana Thoman has been finding out more from historian Helen Fry. Helen, who's not Jewish herself, has written a book about the congregation and Diana started by asking her where her interest came from, considering her background.
6: Well, I've been writing aspects of Anglo-Jewish history for over 20 years, partly because I have ancestors that came over 500 years ago. Muranos came from Spain and Portugal. So I think that's where my hidden interest is. But in terms of Golders Green itself, the community asked me to write their history because of the previous work that I'd done. With them or or in general? In general, I've written widely on anglo jewry in Devon and Cornwall, primarily. And I suppose once you have that template in the research skills, it's transferable to any community. And I found it incredibly interesting, although Golders Green is a much newer community in comparison to, say, Exeter and Plymouth, which are, like, 250 years old. You know, it's just... I found gems in even this modern history.
7: Well, the book is called Golders Green Synagogue, The First Hundred Years, which takes us back, slap into the middle of the First World War. And it occurred to me that if it was founded in 1915... Where were the younger people, particularly the men? The older men would have been around, presumably, to found the synagogue, but the younger men would have by that time been in the forces. How did they manage to get a quorum, a minion? How did they set
6: it up in the middle of a war? Well, it was quite a small community to start with, just around 20 people. Um, and that would, within just a few decades, rise to nearly 1,500 membership. So we're not talking about large numbers in 1915. I think, for me, what's most extraordinary is that a community was founded then at all. And it had to do with Jewish people wanting to move from areas like Cricklewood and Willston towards Golders Green, which was becoming quite fashionable. And, of course, the rapid expansion of Golders Green just in general with the arrival of the Underground some 10-15 years earlier. Yes
7: indeed, I found actually online a wonderful London Transport Underground poster of Golders Green which I've actually got with me, which is brilliant because it describes Golders Green as a place of delightful prospects and that was printed in 1908 and it, indeed, as you say, it had suddenly developed into a very fashionable place to live.
6: Well, I was very lucky, actually. I mean, the book has over 220 photographs, and one of them was given for use by the Hendon Archives. Hugh, the archivist, there was so helpful. And it's, well, it is completely unrecognisable. I mean, Golders Green was green Fields, the crossroads where the War Memorial is now. Completely just a little path can kind of, track road with fields and you really wouldn't know in a million years that this was the hub of what is now Golders Green.
7: Yes indeed.
6: And the other thing I discovered which I love one of the other illustrations was an advert for a house for sale around about this period and I dread to think oh perhaps I shouldn't really you know. imagine right, it, it cost. was about a hundred pounds. A bit more 250 but 250. This, was de- this was detached. <laughs> right. So I doubt you could even get Oh, you couldn't get a
7: shed for that nowadays, absolutely. Where did they meet then before it established itself? This is the synagogue in Dunstan Road.
6: Yes, I mean, for they had a very loose minion for a short time in Heath Drive. But very quickly, they rented premises at St Albans Church. Well, the church itself hadn't been built until, itself until 1937. So the Anglican Christian community was meeting what was called St Albans Hall, It's like a church hall, but what was extraordinary was the minister today, Rex Morton, dug into their archives and found a photograph of the church hall, when it was a proper church. And this would have been used as a synagogue. And it's very high church. It has a a massive altar. It's not just walls and a stage, as I would have assumed as a historian. I just thought it would be something basic. So every time the Jewish community met for Shabbat, for High Holy Days, for Pesach, for example, all the Christian symbols had to be removed or covered over and the place rearranged and then put back again for Sunday. And I think it's just an extraordinary thing. There is, these are two new communities within Golders Green because the Christian community at St Albans Church was relatively new as well. And they lived in tolerance side by side, and this is before the improvement in Christian-Jewish relations. And before the, the Jewish Christian Council? Yes, before Nostra Aetate in 1965. Yes, yeah.
7: yes. long before that. Yeah, long before,
6: like. and of course the Anglican yeah. churches m- made their reparations in terms of its theology much later again, you see. Not even World Council churches in the 1980s. So we're talking about a cooperation, and understanding, non-missionary approach towards the Jewish community. It's quite extraordinary for 1915. And the synagogue, as we call it, the Gold's Green Synagogue, rented it from 1915 until 1922. Because they couldn't build, although they acquired Dunstan Road plot, they couldn't build on it in wartime, not only because of the shortage of materials, and this is what's quite extraordinary about their history, but the government had requisitioned it as allotments you know, for vegetables and food for the nation. Because by that time it was a
7: residential area, presumably. Dunstan Road, I mean. Yes, Yes.
6: a a few houses still to be built, but essentially, yes. But Mm. I think as a historian that was fascinating to discover, number one, that they were worshipping a very high church, which, of course, they covered the symbols, as I said. And secondly, they couldn't build their own synagogue because the land was being used to feed the nation. And didn't become available until 1922. Well, they started building for 1921. It was consecrated right. on 10th September 1922. How did they raise the
7: funds? Who were the alumni, if you like, oh, who they, managed to get the funds together?
6: Yeah, they were. they had some very, very generous benefactors as well as having some charitable fundraising events the early building fund book does survive from 1915 does it really? with a few pound in it you know and of course the United Synagogue also matched some funds the United Synagogue was very very generous to the community Benjamin Drage who was West End furniture business very respectable I suppose almost like a John Lewis if you like a very very respectable business he went on to become knighted he was a huge benefactor and he was the first president of the synagogue.
7: What other alumni have there been since then?
6: Oh a number of them. Of course one of the rabbis was Jonathan Sachs. Really? Nineteen seventy eight to about nineteen eighty two. And of course he went on to become chief rabbi. Indeed. Community's seen its prominent share of intellectuals too, as well as you know, high-profile business people, but medics and professors, a very interesting community. And it's still thriving? Still thriving. I mean, in the 1990s, there was a period of a little bit of decline. I mean, young people not coming there, maybe kind of, I think communities do go through this period of decline and revival. And the building was a little bit in of a sorry state. The community now has completely turned it around. They've worked incredibly hard. They've thought about creative ways of using the space and having events and, of course, building the Jewish school, the free school, which has meant that they now have got waiting list for the school. Where is the school, Helen? It's located behind, it's called the Jewish Rimon School. Literally behind the synagogue? Yes, it's in about its third yeah. year, hugely successful. It's full with a waiting list. And of course, young families are attracted to the synagogue, they have lots of young people's events. Not that it wasn't active in the 70s and 80s, but you know, sometimes communities do just go through a bit of a decline for whatever reason. It may be that people were moving away from the area, yes. But now they're a revived community and very, very... You can feel the vibrancy when you attend any of the events.
7: Well, let's hope for the next 100 years. Can Wish them good luck. How can we get hold of your book?
6: Oh, it's available on Amazon. It's there already. It comes out in about a week's time. And also, one can go into a local bookshop like Joseph's in Temple Fortune or into Smith's and order it. Joseph's should have it in stock soon. Or you can go into Waterstones, anything like that, and order it.
7: And I imagine you've got some wonderful prints in there. Oh, amazing.
6: That's what I like about the book, actually. It's not just about the verbal history and write the words, but 220 or so photographs from disparate sources, and a lot of them never seen before. And I think that brings the community's history to life in a very interesting way. And let's hope for its
7: Great success. And if people want more information, where should they go?
6: Well, they can take a look at my website, helen-fry.com. And if anyone's interested in their own community history, then please do get in touch and maybe, maybe I could do something for them too.
0: Author Helen Fry talking to Diana Thoman there. And if you'd like more information about Helen and her book, Golders Green United, The First 100 Years, then do go to the website she suggested, helen-fry.com. If you would like to get involved, we'd love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Time now to light up a life. Rabbi Yosef Solomon is from Tikkun and on December the 23rd, they launched that very campaign. It's a community-wide volunteering initiative, and Kate Fulton has been finding out more for us. She started by asking Rabbi Yosef to tell us exactly what it's all about.
8: We're actually in our eighth year, and it is an annual 10-day volunteering campaign where we try and fill the gaps left over by non-Jewish workers and volunteers with Jewish volunteers in their stead. You know, During this period of the year, the festive period, um, a lot of people want to go home and spend time with their family and their friends. And to be honest, most Jews are not celebrating this period. So uh, we came up with the idea of uh, trying to fill the gaps. And of course, there's an added kiddush Hashem aspect here that uh, really looks, looks very positively that the Jews are giving back to their communities in such a way.
9: And how do you find where these gaps are?
8: Oh, well... You need a very good staff, and uh, we've got that, thank God. We've made a lot of connections over the years with different organizations and different charities. Give me
9: an example of a few.
8: Okay, so Jewish Care is one of them. Another one is, uh, I think it's called Noah's Ox, a children one. We work with a number of different hospices, soup kitchens, food banks.
9: Because what you're saying is the need is still there. The, the recipients of the care and the the volunteering services.
8: Very much so. But
9: the people have gone on their own holiday. Yeah,
8: of course. It's not everybody. You know, it's not that everything shuts down and people are completely stranded. But it is, in certain instances, actually quite bad. And there are actually certain soup kitchens that do shut down. Another one, which is actually unfortunately not that applicable this year, is that workers who use public transport cannot get to work on the days that the transport is cut off. So what we try and do is get people to drive them in. We call it a drive share and we'll have Jewish people go around to their house and often that can be quite far out of the uh, Golden Screen uh, Hendon hub but they very kindly go out, pick up the nurses or pick up the workers and pull them and drive them in and we will drive them home as well. This year, it's a bit more difficult. So what we've done this year, we've set up an opportunity for people to donate, and we're ordering Uber cabs for people to come into work. Alternatively, you can do that on... Well, it's actually quite interesting. We've expanded the project this year, and we've got people who are not Jewish volunteering this year in order to fill those gaps on Christmas and on New Year's Day.
9: Christmas Day, is is it a Friday this year? So that means... Well, Boxing Day, I presume, is still a yontuf.
8: Yeah, and of course, also Shabbos comes in quite early, so you know, we have to, we can't get people breaking Shabbos so to drive people home. So we're we'll stopping a little bit early, and usually those are our busiest days. But we've involved uh, different communities this year, which has been quite great.
9: And if somebody wants to volunteer, how would they go about it?
8: Yeah, pretty easy. We have a, uh, we've actually launched a new website this year. It's called LightUpALife.org.uk. And it's a very easy, user-friendly website. You just choose your activities, either by the subject matter or the date, and it's pretty easy. Sign up.
9: So it's a big mitzvah that people are doing.
8: Yeah, it's amazing. Look, there's actually there's a lot of research that's been done recently about how people who volunteer... Actually, heal in some way. They actually feel a lot better. Of course, it's not new to us. You know, the, the empiric avos, One of the first things that we learned there that the world stands on three things: taira, avoida, and gimilot uh, chasidim. That's is, the you know, ethics of the fathers. That's right. So there, it's wisdom and spirituality, and well, let's call it acts of kindness. So when people, when people do these acts of kindness, they're really stepping out of themselves. They're really touching into something far more. Some I'd call it humane, I'd call it something more godly, and it's really quite beautiful when you touch it. And that's why we called the campaign this year, Set the Ripple Effect in Motion, because we sort of feel, and we've seen from experience, that when people do this type of thing, it starts a very positive wave outwards, and who knows where they go.
9: And do you draw on their specific skills?
8: We have a section which is, you know, share your skill with us and where people who have specific skills can sign up and volunteer in their specific area. So, for example, last year we had a, uh, a young man who's a magician on the side. It's not his real job, but he does the uh, kids' parties and he's a magician. And we brought him into a number of different hospitals in, in the city and he went in and did his stuff for kids who were unfortunately quite ill. And the effect was just amazing. And that everyone was so thankful, both from the, you know, obviously the kids and the parents. And even the staff another thing that we offer people is to go drop off we get chocolates donated to us and people go around and do a chocolate drop and i've, I've done that personally for the last three four years and it's very moving you know it's quite difficult to see young children who are sick or sick people by bringing them just a box of chocolates with a small message on it that says you know I hope you're doing well and a happy festive season from tikkun and the jewish community it really lights up their life
0: Rabbi Yosef Solomon from Tikkun talking to Kate Fulton there about their Light Up A Life initiative, which starts on the 23rd of December. If you would like more information on Tikkun, then do go to the websites that Rabbi Yosef mentioned earlier on, and that is, of course, lightupperlife.org.uk.
10: You're listening to the Jewish Views, and this is the Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining me today is actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz, and artist and blogger Amanda Wayne. Well, earlier in the news with Viv, you heard the story about an online petition calling on the government to provide the community's main buildings with armed protection to help fight off the threat of terror. The question is, do we really want to live in a world that resembles something out of a war zone? Judy, let's start with you.
11: OK, no, of course I don't want to live in a world that resembles a war zone. But it's not a perfect world and I don't have free choice. I'd rather have protection than not. But it's all messed up. We don't even know who we're protecting ourselves from anymore. On the bus this morning, I was chatting to a a lovely, lovely lady, Asian lady, (coughs) chatting away. She was wearing jeans like I was. Next to us, there was a lady who looked like me, but she had the Muslim scarf on. You, You don't know who you're protecting from anyone and... It's a difficult situation, but we need protection.
10: We have protection already, don't we? We, I mean, we have the CST, don't we? Yeah. That's, That's what I was just going to say. We have the CST. Do
12: we need any more visual protection? I don't think we do. And I don't think we need armed guards, because I think you may then attract more terrorism or more people that would like to come in and attack you. Because they can see the arms and then I I think that's, uh, I think to keep it low key as we have at the moment with the CST, I
10: think there's another way of looking at that, though, if you're going to get somebody just say, I hope not. But if there was somebody from ISIS who came along to a synagogue and saw the CST standing outside, they would just go bang, bang and shoot them. Whereas if you had armed guards, they wouldn't. Well, they might attack the armed guards. They may still do
12: the same no, thing. No, because the, the armed guards, guards will,
10: be, will be at them before they could get to the armed guard. Oh, I hope so. I don't know.
11: Or they might go for one armed guard, by which time the other one will be alerted what's happening and then go back. So,
10: I mean, we're living in a world now where, where we need safety, where we need help. Now, the CST does a wonderful job. Is it enough? Is does the, the, question, s- does the CST need to be armed?
13: I obviously want to sort of play devil's advocate and and ask, you know, we're just talking a Community perspective as Jewish people, but I think you know we need to look at all places of worship because everybody's under threat. And well, of course, is the- that something that we can feasibly do for everybody? Can we can we stay on this level of high alert at all times? At what when do you draw the line? When does the high alert end? Because actually, there's there's quite a lot of plots that were foiled that we didn't know about. We've actually been on high alert as a country for for a long time, and well, we certainly. and we didn't know. So it's quite hard to make that judgment of sort of when high levels of security begin and end.
10: The fact is, and I, I, I believe that somebody said it to me the other day, that we are now, in this, this year now, we are in the same position as we were in, and the rest of the Western world, if you like, in the same position that we were in in 1938, that in fact, we could be leading to World War III, because ISIS is, is backed by the most tremendous money. I don't know where it comes from but it's backed by the most tremendous money. I
13: think we're already in World War 3 to be honest with you there's some really big power countries involved in this this war that we're now involved in which you know we're officially involved in now but I think the thing I want to say in response to your first point was suspecting people around us is is that's what's reminiscent of kind of when we think about other wars that we should should learn from is that sense of the other and the fear of the other and that's something that can only lead to disaster. You know, starting to suspect people that are around you just because of the way they dress, their, their the colour of their skin, uh, the way they carry themselves. It's it's leading to a very uncomfortable population, well, and we what, have to yeah. question this that. This is
12: what happened in Germany in the 30s, of yeah. course, when the Germans were targeting Jewish people because of they could see who they were because of the way they were dressed. Yeah. And we shouldn't be going down that route, which is why I wouldn't want to have armed guards outside. I think having... A subtler protection I think is better. I think it will... We've not been attacked in this country.
13: Mm.
12: Places that have armed guards, Rome, Paris, which have armed guards outside the religious institutes, have been attacked. But why have we not been attacked?
13: I also think that as we learn more about ISIS and kind of what their remit is as an organisation, they want to create chaos. That to them is success. And what what better chaos to create than fear mongering amongst people, ordinary people that are just going about their daily lives as normal? For them to stop travelling on the tube or on the bus, and well, that's to suspect just it, their neighbor isn't
11: it? We're talking maybe churches, synagogues, but what about the shops before Christmas? You know, it doesn't bear thinking about. No.
10: In fact, mosques have been attacked a tremendous amount recently. I mean, it's an absolute fact that people, nothing terrible has happened, but they have been attacked. They've been stopped, luckily. But mm. because at the moment in this country, Muslims are being treated the same way that Jews were treated oh, some yes. years back. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
13: But I ask, you know, they're, they're not targeting any particular group, Jews. They probably are also targeting Muslims, Muslims that don't su- subscribe to their sort of well, so level of belief. Yeah. yeah, so it's...
11: Yeah. It's hard to know where to protect. When they who born to protect. In indiscriminately, they don't know who's no. there. But I feel ultra sorry for Muslims because I know if I'm reading in the paper and um, somebody's committed fraud or, or some terrible deed and it's a Jewish name, I feel I own it. I feel embarrassed for me, for other Jews. And I feel not responsible, but I do think, what will other people who aren't Jewish think of that? And every... 90 whatever percentage of Muslims who are good, loving people, they must feel terrible when all this is happening.
10: Yet you can look at it the other way. There are those people who say that there are lots of good, wonderful Muslims, and I know some very well, but they put their religion first and they will not admit to anybody in their family, perhaps being a you know, a a bad one. Do Do you think that, getting
12: onto the Muslim side of it, that by, and they all haven't been quiet recently, but up until a certain point, they were very quiet about condemning what had been happening in the name of Islam. By... Being quiet, do you think they were condoning what was happening? No, No, actually, I
13: think it's a real shame that they even had to make a statement because, I mean, I don't know where we've pulled this percentage of 90% of Muslims aren't sort of sympathising with IS. I think it's pretty much all Muslims aren't. IS are a really extreme organisation. They don't represent the, the mainstream view of, of that religion. So it's kind of a shame if you imagine from the Jewish perspective that there was a really radicalised group of Jews doing some atrocious things and we had to step up as a community just to say, you know, we don't agree with those mm-hmm. things. That would be a shame because you know, you'd know you hope that we all know that that these people are the few and they are disgusting. Yeah,
11: we know that. We know but that. non-Jews might not know that. It's and very- so
13: similarly you feel that you feel more encouraged that the Muslim population should step up and speak for, a, for an organisation that doesn't would, represent them at all? Yeah,
12: to say that they don't represent them, because the majority of, I think, what yes, you were saying, non-Jewish I do. people. I've got a lot of non-Jewish friends, Christian friends, who look at, as you were saying, on the train, sitting on the train, looking around. A Muslim comes on and they look with fear. This one woman, one man that gets yes. on the train for no apparent reason. Well, yes. there is a reason, but they're, 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 on the face of it, there's no apparent reason. This person is just going off to college, going off to work, whatever they're doing, like we were doing. So, so this think, once again. So, pur- so the the rest of the Muslim community standing up and saying we condone this, I think, puts a level of
10: non fear into into this community yes. that. Earlier this week, there was the most appalling thing that happened. A Muslim family were going to visit the relations in America, and they were told they couldn't get on the plane, yes. and they were sent home. And the man, who the father of the family, said, this is awful because we were only going to visit our family. And what do I say to my children now? I don't believe in the terrible things that, that ISIS is doing and yet, my children will now say, "Well, we might as well join ISIS." Because okay,
13: yeah, exactly. And they've, in a, in a sense, mm. they've succeeded because they've created yes. that chaos. They've disrupted our sense of normalcy mm-hmm. and our ability to kind of do things that
12: we're all the Ameri- have the
13: rights, you know, equal human rights to get on a plane and go. And the and American
12: agency didn't
10: qualify it, did they? The, no, uh, whatever they call no. it over in America, yes. they didn't qualify. Why they wouldn't let these so people on the plane? The more we say these things, the more obvious it appears to me that maybe it is a good idea to have guards who are armed at synagogues and mosques and churches even.
11: And shopping centres and, and the yes, underground everywhere. and bus stations and oh. every bus stop and...
10: Well, well, how I, can I, like I,
11: I can't agree with that. I think,
13: you know, that to me has gone too far and I think that's letting that's letting them win is to well, see that kind of thing. What happens
10: in Israel now? Do they have armed guards Everywhere,
13: around? yeah. It's, it's a complete sort of armed state, in, isn't in it? In Israel it is. Yeah. And they have do you think that makes everywhere. it worse? Well, Israel. look, I think Israel is a very different case. Like, for all sorts of reasons, it's quite hard to draw that comparison. And I personally, you know, I don't like the feel of, of having army personnel everywhere. I just don't think... Once, once our country's come to that, there's no going back. You know, where do you draw the line? When, Like I said at the start, when do we decide that's no longer a threat? And now we can send our army back to doing what they were doing before, you know? what what, you about, what about
12: if someone was... Let, let's say someone walks up to a, a shawl... And you've got the armed guard and, and the policeman thinks, hello, this is someone who accidentally shoots someone. Well, why shouldn't he? Well, because he thinks there may be a threat the person coming along may be a threat. So exactly. I'm I mean that's sure. the psychology so of fear, the, isn't it? It's accident, just once you put friendly <coughs> shot and then there's a whole inquiry about
11: once you put firearms in people's hands,
12: I don't people like that, that oh, you have don't fear like the
11: American gun culture.
12: I don't like that. I've at got
11: all. family there
13: and I don't like it at all. Yeah, well I that like culture that I suppose is born out of a sense of fear and protection and the and the right to protect oneself, which is what we're talking <laughs> about. If
12: we went back to the to when London was being bombed by the IRA, and I know the IRA always gave warnings and, and phone calls, but we got on with our everyday life. We didn't We didn't have any... Well, we had the fear, but we... You know, being, being typically British, as I guess we all are, we, we just got on with it. You had to get on oh, with every day.
11: Tony, if you were on a train or you were somewhere, you couldn't look at a group of people and say, oh, he's Irish, he's Irish. No, but you'd look at packages, you,
10: wouldn't you? Yeah, um, maybe. The same thing, I now, think. But there weren't armed guards around in Paris when that terrible tragedy happened. Not
12: a, oh. not recently,
10: no. But no, yeah, no. there were
12: armed, there's armed guards on all the shores in Paris, and restaurants, and places like that. Well, I think there have
10: to be. Mm-hmm.
12: Well, I think that's the culture they've grown up in. But they, the, then the police in Paris have always been armed. Police in, in Italy have always been armed, whereas the police in England have, we've have had never our really. Yeah, we have our truncheons. But they've never really been armed. No. and I and I think because they have never really been armed, we, we've never had that threat.
10: Well, I, I I, wonder actually, you see, I'd love to think like you think, but I mean, it just needs once for somebody to attack a synagogue or mosque or church or a um, Hindu temple and people get killed, I and mean, then you'd have to think again.
12: Well, synagogues in England have been attacked in the past, but they're usually just yobs, aren't they? That,
10: that have been so
13: you're it. saying, you know, we, we shouldn't wait for something to happen, we should take action. Exactly. But what about the view what, that maybe what, you... You know, sh- you, know,
10: you know what happened in 1939? You're You don't remember it, obviously, but you know what happened in 1939, 1938 and 1939, when the Prime Minister went to Chamberlain, went to Germany and saw Hitler and came back and said, peace in our time. And a year later, the Second World War happened. You can't have this sort of friendly approach when there are people like Hitler, when there are people like ISIS. And believe me, ISIS is like Hitler, if not worse.
12: It is slightly worse because you've got nobody to negotiate anything with the exactly. If you had armed guards on religious institutions, but they weren't visual, so you had someone there all the time but wasn't, didn't mm. stand outside the front, maybe that would help. Then you've, you know you've got someone there to protect, but they're not...
13: But I'm genuinely asking the it. question, at what point do we draw the line? Let's say we've put armed guards in all of our synagogues. Well, we have when... that already. Yeah, so well, maybe they're all, you know. So we 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 take it to the next level. At what point do we say, actually, it seems seems safe now? We can go back to as we were. I'm I'm genuinely asking that question.
12: Safe. I think we'd be less safe. Yeah,
13: because we would have already taken that sort of step mm. into what what is a sort of psychological war. Because once you put guns in people's hands and there's that that level of fear and danger, there's no sort of retreating from that.
10: Well, there we are. I hope you're all right. I'm afraid that we're going to have to leave it, but it was a very interesting discussion, and I. I wonder what people listening think. Anyway, my thanks to our guests, actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carveritz, and artist and blogger Amanda Wayne. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. And it's time now for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Moshiach Kalati.
14: During these weeks, we have been reading the Torah portions relating to Yosef, the son of Jacob, who had been separated from his father for 22 long years. Now, during this time, Jacob mourned his son in a way that is almost indescribable. His solace was unlike any other solace, any other mourning in the history of man. It was beyond depression. So you can only imagine the joy when Jacob finds out that his son, Joseph, is alive and living in Egypt. So we join the story at the historic meeting between father and son. Now, the Torah tells us that when they met, they embraced, and Joseph wept on his father's neck. Now, the medieval commentary Rashi tells us what Jacob was doing at that time. You would have expected he would have been reciprocating. But in fact, Rashi tells us he was saying Shema. Now, this is a very strange thing. You would have thought this was the last time to catch up on some overdue dovening. At this point, there should have been intense emotion. Why, after not seeing his son for 22 years, did he find it an appropriate time for saying the Shema? The answer to this is given to us by the Maharal, another 15th century commentary, who tells us that Jacob was in fact caught up in such intense emotion and gratitude to God that he wanted to direct that love towards Hashem. Whilst this is undoubtedly an extremely lofty level, one must still appreciate that it teaches us how ultimately it is a level to which we must all strive. Perhaps a lesson we can learn on a practical level is when we're caught up in the moment, it could be a happy moment, an inspirational moment, we can at least spare a thought for God, who in his intense love for us, brought us this joy in the first place.
0: Thank you very much to Rabbi Mashiach Kalati with our thought for the week there. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks very much to all of the guests who appeared on this show. And we also have to thank you at home for listening. And we can't possibly forget to thank our team, including our producers, Sue Greenberg and Tony Honickberg. You can always download the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website. And that address is coming right up. You can also search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part-recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. Don't forget to pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. I'm Phil Dave. Make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.